want to continue focusing on the gospel by turning back to the passage uh, that Joyce read to you from Galatians chapter 2. Would you turn there, please? Galatians chapter 2, continuing series of messages that we are focusing on the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of reconciliation. We're going to continue to do that this morning. So Galatians chapter 2, and we hear a story shared with us, uh, Paul reminisces a little bit, and he talks about a, a stand that he had to take for the gospel because there had been a sudden attack on the church, the church in particular up in Asia Minor, an attack on the gospel that had not come from without but come from within. And so Paul had to uh, seek the Lord and stand up and address this battle which was taking place. As I was reading uh, what Paul shares in this passage, uh, being a little bit of a, a history phobe, I uh, thought about the story of the Battle of the Bulge. Battle of the Bulge was the most perhaps horrific battle in many ways in World War II. Most American casualties took place in that battle, which was extended over nearly a month period of time. Happened in December, early January 1944. People were saying the war would be over before Christmas. The Allies had just marched across Europe and since D-Day on December the 6th and now they had reached the Rhine River, ready to advance into Germany. But on December 16th, in the worst weather possible, 13 divisions of German infantry, tanks, and artillery, 200,000 men, came bursting out of the Ardennes Forest in Belgium, and they attacked so Ferociously, a huge bulge was made in the Allied line. And the battle continued for over four weeks and it became known as the Battle of the Bulge. And again, more American casualties in that battle than any other battle in the Second World War. Now, the attack was a complete surprise. Complete surprise. And it was carefully planned, though, by the Germans. And they had one shrewd tactic that was going to allow them to make this advance. Here was the shrewd tactic. They sent in soldiers in American uniforms and in British uniforms to change the road signs of key crossroads in order to confuse and to delay and to detour the Allies from being able to respond in a unified way against the attack. And so what was the immediate necessary response for the Allied army? The necessary response was to recognize the deception, to restore the signs and to defend the crossroads at all costs. Recognize the deception, restore 
the signs, and to defend the crossroads at all costs. Now here in Galatians, Paul is talking about, he is discussing a surprise attack. A surprise attack, a spiritual assault of the enemy on the gospel and on the church. Now, the unity of the church has not yet been broken as a result of this, but it has caused a bulge in the unity of the churches because of this spiritual assault. And this terrible bulge is taking place because there is an attack, an attack on the message of the gospel an attack on the meaning of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And so in a moment of crisis, there is a courageous general who stands up to defend the gospel and take back and hold the gospel crossroads. Now, that general we know as the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul takes the stand for the gospel. And in this letter, this letter to the churches of Galatia, he describes and defends why holding the crossroads of the gospel, why holding the gospel is so important and to help people see how deceptive the attack on the gospel really is within the church. Not just on the belief of the church, but how the church behaves toward each other as members. So Paul talks about this crossroads. And he gives three gospel crossroads experiences. He says, I want to talk to you about the gospel. I want to share three gospel crossroads experiences experiences with you. That's what he does. That's what I want us to look at in our time here this morning and consider for the application to our own hearts because what is written is not written just so we will know some historical facts, but written for our present day admonition and instruction, right? The Bible is always up to date. Now notice here, the first crossroad experience that Paul shares is a crossroad of the power of the gospel. A crossroad of the power of the gospel. The reason Paul is so passionate about the gospel is because the gospel to him was so personal. It was so personal, that's the reason he was so passionate about it. And it was so personal because Paul had had his own crossroad experience. Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. He talks about his crossroad experience. And you can actually begin reading uh, before, but we'll pick it up at verse 14. In chapter 1, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was completely committed to the Judaism that was practiced in his day. He was a leader of it, a champion of it. 
and he adhered to it from his fathers, his ancestors. But, there's the divine intervention. But when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, he was revealed, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul had a close encounter of the divine kind with the Lord Jesus Christ that he had so persecuted, so hated, and he did not believe in him, but he had a personal experience of the grace of God in Christ in his heart. And it transformed him completely so that what he used to hope in for his salvation and what used to be his identity was no longer his hope and no longer his identity. Why is Paul so passionate about the gospel? Because the gospel for him was not a ritual of religion. The gospel was a reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the reason he was so passionate. His faith to him was not the ritual of religion. It was the reality of a living relationship he had with Christ. And for Paul, ever etched in his very being was this crossroads experience on the Damascus Road when he personally met Jesus. My friends, there's something we need to understand. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person, first of all. The gospel is a person. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. When Paul's writing to the Galatians who are about to listen to these false teachers, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Who called you in the grace of Christ. Not desert, not, you're not deserting. You're not abandoning your belief system. Though they were. You are abandoning him. When you forsake the gospel. You are forsaking Jesus Christ. It's personal. Paul took the gospel personally. Might pause to ask us here this morning, how personal is the gospel to you? In the depths of your being, is your faith something that you have been taught? Is your faith something that you have learned? Is your faith a creed to which you hold? Or down in the depths of your being, your faith is Jesus Christ your Lord. He's real. You know whom you have believed, not just what you have believed. It's Christ. We're talking about a relationship, and Paul was passionate about that. And he understood that saying the gospel, when you say the gospel is not enough, and that's what was happening in Galatia, these people trying to put the law onto faith, you must have faith and keep the law. He understood, here's what the case is. Saying the gospel is not enough is saying Jesus is not enough. It's saying that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, 
that really wasn't enough to make a person completely acceptable to God. Paul understood that adding to the gospel is subtracting from Jesus. Adding to the gospel is subtracting from Jesus. So Paul knew what was at stake. He knew he had to take a stand. And so he made a long journey to a crossroad. And that's the second crossroad I want you to see. He, he gives the experience of a crossroad for the truth of the gospel. Now, we're going to look at this in just a moment, beginning in chapter 2. If you want to look there, we'll be there in just a moment. But Paul reminds us of the core issue. This is the core issue. What is the core issue they are dealing with in Galatia? And not just in Galatia and in around the world where the gospel has gone. And it might help you to understand this, church. Bible scholars are almost certain that the first New Testament book written was this letter of the Galatians. It's the first. Before Matthew, before Mark, before Luke, the first letter written is this letter of Galatia. Why? Because very early within the church, within the message of the gospel, people were adding ritual, adding requirements to the gospel that was going to destroy it at the very first era of the gospel outreach. And so here's what the question was. What was the question? The question was not, can Gentiles become Christians? That wasn't the question. That was, had it already been made clear through Peter and going to the house of Cornelius. Remember, we looked at that two weeks ago. It, the question is not, can Gentiles become Christians? Here's the question. Do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Do Gentiles have to become Jewish? Meaning, do they have to take all the rituals and practices of Judaism plus Messiah in order to be Christians? Paul knew this was a crossroad. He knew what was at stake. So guess what he did? Paul made a journey to headquarters. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he did. He says, then after 14 years, that is, this is into his ministry of sharing the gospel among the Gentiles. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed, that I was proclaiming, among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now notice, Paul says he came in the will of God. God gave him a, revela a revelation. Paul, you need to go back to Jerusalem. There, there's issues here that are dividing the church. There's a message coming out by some false people from Jerusalem saying that the Gentiles must become Jewish in order to become Christians. And so he goes back and he goes with wisdom. He goes in the will of God and he goes with wisdom. And notice he brought two people with him. Who did he bring with him? Barnabas, 
who is so beloved by the people in Jerusalem, and he's also Jewish. He brings Barnabas, and he brings who else? Titus. And Titus is a Gentile. He is a Gentile convert. So Paul goes back to the conference. Hey, he's pretty smart, right? He takes a Jewish believer known and loved by the disciples in Jerusalem, and he takes a Gentile convert named Titus. He came privately. That is, he didn't come and call for an open meeting. He came privately to talk to the leaders of the church, and he set out before them his gospel. He says, this is the gospel I'm sharing. It's a gospel for the Jews like Barnabas and the Gentiles like Titus. He wanted to make sure that what he was doing was not in vain. And most of all, he came. Why did he come to Jerusalem? Because he had to reset the guide, the guide post, the crossroads post. He had to make a bold witness for the gospel. Verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out of our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so they might bring us unto slavery. Notice where the enemy is. The enemy is not on the outside. The enemy is on the inside. These false legalistic believers saying that Gentiles must become Jews in order to become Christians. They slipped in. So Paul did not want to stir all that up. He wanted to go directly to the leaders of the church. To these men we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, Notice what he does. Paul comes with a bold witness and he comes literally to the supreme court of the church, you could say. He comes back to headquarters, Jerusalem. He comes to the supreme court and he brings exhibit A of the gospel. Who is that? Titus. Titus is a Gentile, but he's a complete Christian. No, he's not come under the traditions of Judaism. No, he's not been marked by circumcision. He's not Jewish, but he is a Christian and he is a full brother in Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul's doing? And Paul says why he did this. Notice why he did it. He said, I did this, verse 4, to defeat false brothers the enemy has put traitors false brothers inside the church who are subverting the gospel by adding to the gospel they're false brothers and they've got to be recognized for the false message they're sharing he said I did this verse 4 to defend our freedom do you see that our freedom not to come back under bondage and I did this to defend your faith, to preserve the faith for you. This is what is at stake. The gospel is at stake. The freedom is at stake. If we start adding to the gospel, we're adding to Jesus. 
And in trying to do that, we are preaching another gospel. That's what he says in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Paul took the stand and he won a victory for the gospel. What a victory. Historic. This is called the Jerusalem Council. You can read about it in Acts 15. But don't read it this morning, please. Okay. Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council. Do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Paul brought the case right to the Supreme Court of the church in Jerusalem. And he won a great victory. Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. They didn't add anything to my message. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jewish people, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the Jewish people also worked through me to mine of the Gentile people. And when James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter here, and when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be the pillars, the pillars of the church of Jerusalem, when James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, and Peter and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, they would go to the Jewish people, only they ask us to just remember the poor. He said, of course, this is part of the gospel, remembering the poor. And we always were doing that. What happened? He received an affirmation from the church in Jerusalem that these people who were trying to add works and divide the church over Jewishness and Gentile practices were without any support whatsoever. That was a great victory. Now, a victory for gospel unity is also a victory for gospel diversity. Paul would go to the Gentiles, Peter would go to the Jews, they would have different ministries, but the same gospel, right? Separate calling, but the same gospel. Now, my friends, here's some things I want us to know this morning. The gospel is a crossroad. The gospel, first of all, divides. Don't be mistaken. The gospel divides. Why? There is only one gospel. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Paul said there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The gospel divides. It is Jesus Christ or hell. It is our sins and the punishments are our sins, 
or it is Jesus Christ, the Savior, our substitute and Redeemer, or hell. There is no other way. There is the narrow way. It's the bloodstained way that leads to the cross. And there's the broad road, the easy way that leads to hell. The gospel divides. What we share when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, the only Son of God, the only Savior of the world, we say that with love and we say it with a breaking heart, but that is true. And truth is not relative. If there's another way to God and salvation other than Jesus Christ, then the most horrendous evil act that ever took place was for God to put his son on that cross. But there is no other way. And there is no other one. The gospel divides. But the gospel also unites. It unites all people so that all people who have come to Christ, regardless of what nation they've come from, regardless of what race they've come from, regardless of what background they've come from, regardless of what region they've come from, if they come to Jesus Christ, in Christ, all the walls come down and we are united in Christ. The division is the gospel. Christ alone is the Savior. But inside the Savior, there is to be no division. There is to be no separation inside of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knew what was at stake, and he took a stand. Sometimes we need people who are willing to take a stand. Like General Anthony McAuliffe who was the acting commanding general of the 101st Airborne, the headquarters in the Battle of the Bulge for the 101st Airborne was the town of Bastogne. All the roads in that area connected on Bastogne. The 101st Airborne was told to hold it at all costs. They were bombed day and night. They were attacked on all sides. They were surrounded. And the German commander under a white flag, sent in a word to call on the Americans to, to surrender and be spared annihilation. And that message was given to General McAuliffe, who was commanding. And here was his reply. General McAuliffe wrote to the German commander, Nuts! <laughs> From the American commander. <laughs> that was his answer. Nuts. They didn't even understand what that meant. <laughs> and so an American officer translated it for them. Not so politely. <laughs> Word got to Patton who was trying to get his tanks. General Patton get his tanks to Baston. And here's what he said when he heard what. General McAuliffe, he said, he said to the colonel who had given him the message, Colonel, keep them moving. A man that eloquent has to be rescued. <laughs> and you know, they held. They held. 
The battle was won. You see, sometimes the gospel must be protected. But folks, listen carefully. What's Paul talking about? It has to be protected inside the church. Inside the church. And that's the third crossroad. We close with this. Paul said there's a crossroad for the protection of the gospel. A crossroad for the protection from the gospel. The gospel sometimes is not to be protected from mean-spirited foes. It must be protected from misguided friends. Let me say that again. The gospel at times must not be protected from mean-spirited foes, but from misguided friends. People like Peter. Paul shares another gospel crossroad. Here's what happened. Verse 11. Joyce read about it. But when Cephas came to Antioch. Now Paul is in Antioch. What happened in the Antioch? That's the, where the, Christ, the believers were first called. I gave you the clue. What were they first called there? Christians. Why were they first called Christians? Because it's the first city where Jews and Gentiles became part of the same congregation. First place. And so here they are in Antioch. Cephas comes. Peter comes. But when he arrived, after a period of time, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What's going on here? That one apostle, Paul, would call out another apostle, Peter. And this isn't privately. This is publicly. For before certain men came from James. Now James doesn't mean he sent them. But James is the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And some of those false teachers adding to the gospel. They make their way up to Antioch. And before they got there. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came. That is the people from the home church. He drew back and separated himself, fearing this circumcision party, this group that was saying the Gentiles have got to become Jewish if they're going to be part of us. And he said the rest of the Jews acted so hypocritically along with him, even Barnabas, the son of consolation, even Barnabas, my mentor, the man who mentored Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. They weren't walking out the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though, a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's Paul saying? He said, what's going on here? You were enjoying Gentile company. You were enjoying Gentile food. But now, how can you act like this? How can you force Gentiles to become Jews?
the church at Antioch until this time, listen carefully, the church of Antioch until this time had been having a gospel party. Jews and Gentiles together, it never happened before, enjoying each other's company, fellowshipping together, all the differences between them knocked down. It was a party, but guess what? The party got crashed. And who crashed the party? The James Gang. The James Gang. It's in your Bible. Read it right there. The James Gang. It's like an Old Testament. It's like, it's like a New Testament Western. Oh, there are all these people talking gospel talk. Look at us. Jews and Gentiles. Hey, we're all hanging out together. Isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? Hey, hand me that ham sandwich. Isn't this great? They're all talking this gospel talk. But when the James gang shows up from Jerusalem, oh, you can't find a citizen to come out and face the James gang. But there's one marshal who steps out. Marshal Paul. And he steps out like a high noon moment. And he took a stand publicly. He loved Peter. Peter was in the faith before he was. Peter had the keys of the kingdom. But Peter was dead wrong on this. And the church was at stake. And he had to be called out. He took a stand against gospel hypocrisy. Now, why did Peter do this? I'll tell you why he did it. Verse 10 of chapter 1 tells us why. Peter, Paul says, if I am seeking the approval man of God, if I, or am I seeking to please man? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I seeking to please man? You've got to decide who you want to please. And there comes moments when you can't please people and please God, and you're going to have to decide. Because who you decide to please is who you serve. And if your friends are wrong, but you don't want to tell them you're wrong, they're wrong, in love, you don't want to tell them they're wrong, then you are not in that moment a servant of God and His truth. You've become a servant of man. It's fear. He's fear of rejection. Fear of being ridiculed. Fear that a bad report would go out about his name. And what is that rooted in, friends? What is fear of man rooted in? Pride. Personal pride. And even some racial pride. Well, maybe we ought not to be hanging out with these people. They are different from us. They look different from us. They sound different from us. Their songs are different from us. They've got different from traditions from us. Maybe, maybe we really ought not to be doing this. See, it's, it's fear of man. It's mixed in with pride. And it's mixed in with some racism as well. So it was time for an apostolic showdown. And not one in private. Hey, Peter, let's get together and have coffee. No, no. Can't be dealt with that way. There's some things that can't be dealt with that way. There are some things that are so wrong. They're so wrong involving the church that a cup of coffee between two or three people won't deal with it because the gospel's at stake. 
So Paul went to the root problem. It was not a behavior problem. His behavior was wrong. Peter's behavior was wrong. But it wasn't a behavior problem. It was a belief problem. You're not living out the gospel. In your practice, you're defaming the gospel. You say you believe the gospel. You say you are a follower of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You say you believe that. But when it comes to your fellowship with people of other backgrounds, you draw a line. And it's that separation that is defaming the gospel. You see, we can add requirements. We love all people. But people of our same color just a little bit more. Of course we love everybody. The gospel's for everybody. But you know, folks of the same status need to find places to get together. Of course... We send out missionaries to the world. Of course, we're sending out the gospel to Dominica. And it's going to Colombia. And it's going to Greece. And it's going to India and China. And it's going to Romania. But when we get together, you know, maybe we just ought to have our separate ways of doing things. We love everybody as long as they look right when they come in the door. We love everybody as long as they interpret everything just the way we do on every little non-essential doctrinal issue. They like the same kind of music that we like. You see how real this is, church? We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters, all of us, who know Jesus Christ. And anything that we allow to divide us other than the absolute truth of the gospel shames our profession in the gospel. You can say what you want to say, but when we're not willing to cross over man-made barriers in the deepest parts of our heart, that's what we really believe. You haven't listened quickly enough. Let me give you these four statements and then... We're going to pray. I'm telling Doug, we're going to pray. Okay. <laughs> Some gospel crossroad guideposts. Make sure you get these. Take this away with you. Number one, adding to the gospel destroys the gospel. Number two, the gospel means accepting everyone Jesus has accepted. Number three, a gospel-focused church is guided by the teachings of the Bible, not the traditions of people. Number four, a gospel-focused church shares an exclusive message with an inclusive spirit. Let me explain that one. 
The message of the gospel is exclusive. Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior. That's pretty exclusive. But we share that exclusive message with an inclusive spirit. We want everyone to be reconciled to God. And we accept them where they are. We meet them where they are. We don't make them become like us in order to be among us. As a matter of fact, we go to them. We break down the barriers. The gospel of reconciliation produces a people of unified diversity. We're unified in the gospel, but guess what? We're really different from each other. Some really different. Almost odd. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. One Savior for all people. And we want to represent that as a people. Because you know why? Listen carefully, church. It is the gospel. When we add anything to anyone in order to love them, we're adding to the gospel. Now, Father, I thank you for this time. And I pray right now for us in this, uh, this gathering. We have another one to come. I do that too, Lord. At the most important moment, I get busy closing up things rather than listening to your voice. And in this moment, we need to listen. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for us at this congregation that we will be people of the book of the gospel without any compromise. But Lord, we will be known as a people of love. And we will know that our gatherings are known as a place of love and a place of safety and welcome. I pray this will be so. And now, oh Lord God, I pray for anyone here who does not have that assurance of a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, may today they trust in him. And, O oh Lord, send us out now with your love and compassion and make us your people of the gospel in your name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.